everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk About It. I'm Megan. And I'm Jackie. And today we're continuing our little series about caricatures. So first we talked about Protestant caricatures. If you missed that, go listen to it because I talk in it. But this episode, we're going to listen lot. to Jackie. <laughs> she talks a lot. <laughs> this episode is on Catholic caricatures. So it is a great mirror episode. So you should listen to both of them for sure. Yeah, they play off of each other. Yes. Because I talk about tradition, sola scriptura, and mine, and the misconceptions on our end. And then Megan also addresses it on her end. So mm-hmm. they're a great pair. So Jackie, why don't you just start off with one of like the very first misconceptions? Well, I'm going to start with the most controversial division Ooh. between Protestants and Catholics, the Pope, Pope Francis himself. No, not Pope Francis himself, but the, the only pope, of the pope ever to be. Yeah, Pope Francis has actually been alive since the time of Jesus. He actually met Jesus. Oh, good for him. I know, right? He's really lucky. Yeah. Um, no, I'm doing a horrible job of breaking the caricatures. Just laid out an absolute lie that no one believes ever. <laughs> no, so I think the caricature is that Catholics have many popes. Uh, the truth is, is we actually only have one pope from the beginning of time. Pope Francis. Just Pope Francis. The other ones were actually fake popes. Yeah. So. the untrue ones <laughs> yeah so that's really unfortunate no okay <laughs> no the real first misconception is papal infallibility means that everything the pope says is true slash binding so it means any thought that the pope shares anything he writes any sermon he gives it's a lot of pressure yeah in any just interview on the plane when they're like pope francis and give him a microphone that anything he says is binding is true it's just like jesus is talking and we're like whoa no like if your bible has the red letters when jesus is talking that's like the pope yeah yeah no because we all know there have been some really really bad popes throughout history that have been murderers and rapists <gasps> and said some really wacko things and also ordered for people to be murdered which in jesus's book that's a big no no so <laughs> the only time we believe that the pope can be infallible is when he's speaking in matters of faith and even then not everything he says his opinion about certain things within the faith or his opinion on certain practices or whatever that's not always him speaking infallibly it's only when he's speaking with the special power from the seat of peter Um, we call that ex cathedra either on his own which he's only done twice the pope has only ever done twice in the history of all of the popes or in accordance with (laughs) history of all the popes history of all the popes or when he's in accordance with his bishops he cannot go crazy and say something that contradicts the Bible and it also and it be binding because we don't believe that any of the teachings, uh, anytime the Pope has spoke ex cathedra or in accordance um, with the bishops uh, ever has or anything in our capital T tradition, which I will get into more later because there's a way different def- definition between lowercase tradition and capital T tradition. But I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I hear that they'll point out all the bad things the Pope did and say, see, your thought about the Pope is not true. And I'm like, that's (laughs) not true. Actually, I think that the fact that we've kept intact all of our teachings, even through having terrible Popes, actually points more toward the papacy being true because somehow God still protected his faith through these 
terrible popes and some of them probably are in hell. I don't know that for sure because I don't know where anyone's soul went, but some of them mm, probably are. Awkward. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, this was one we've laughed about this before that I definitely had. I was like, I just don't understand. Like, popes say some wacky stuff. Like, I just don't really get it. Um, So, yeah, I definitely, this is a common misconception because I myself had it. Um, So, yeah, and I think this is pertinent too just with the whole like latin mass stuff that's been going on recently i was actually gonna bring that up because pope benedict put into place um, more freedom within the bishops throughout the united states and wherever to say oh a church can have this many latin masses or this or this and then pope francis just put more restrictions Mm. on that but that's on the level of discipline which is not binding which can change because in the catholic faith we have three different distinctions we have dogma which is what the pope has spoken ex cathedra we have doctrine which is lower the pope has never come out and spoken with his infallible power something but it's still binding so it's still something that is binding to all of the faithful and it's authoritative is, is authoritative and well yes it's not yeah it's not infallible but it's something it, it is yeah it's binding on all of the faithful and it is stuff that has been um like teachings on sexuality sure those things are clearly in the bible we you know and those things are binding to the faithful but it's not something the pope came out and spoke with his ex cathedra power and mm-hmm. said like this but disciplines are things that can change you know on the um byzantine right there's priests that can get married on the roman catholicism side priests can never get married that's a discipline that technically at some point could change probably won't but could the latin mass being able to be practiced um the extent to which it can that's a discipline there are certain things that are just lower level that will change um and are usually what the pope is saying would be best for the faithful and it is we are supposed to obey in those ways but it's not like it couldn't change and popes could disagree well i think clearly popes disagree (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) but there are some things that popes have done that wasn't them changing the discipline they're just being crazy (laughs) yeah Um, just out of curiosity, what does it look like to have the Pope speak ex cathedra? They come out with a decree and say, they pretty much say it. It says it in the document. It comes oh, okay. him out saying, this is under the papal authority. And I am saying this is mindful to all the faithful. It's basically when they take doctrine and even elevate it more because it's something the Pope sees that needs to be, um, needs to be dogmatized and needs to be really elevated so two of those things which are huge um separations between the catholic faith and the protestant faith are the immaculate conception of mary and then the assumption of mary into heaven body and soul which actually the day we're recording this is the feast day within the catholic church of the assumption of mary so that's funny Uh, but those were the two things and that's a huge reason that protestants disagree with people infallibility papal infallibility because they disagree with those two things which is fair if you disagree with those two things and see them as not biblical then you would disagree with papal infallibility but i want to point out that we don't think that that contradicts the bible and we also think that implicitly you can kind of see it in the text the way that we even though it's not explicit which is why we think god gave us apostolic succession the pope to be able to interpret the bible or pull out these things that the faithful should believe and that's a huge difference between um 
the way that Protestants see the Bible or the weight they put on authority in the Bible and all of that, which you should listen to Megan's episode because she goes into depth about Sola Scriptura. So speaking of Mary, you worship her, right? Yeah, my girl Mary. (laughs) I do my sacrifices every day. (laughs) Every every caricature, I'm going to have an even worse caricature (laughs) than you could think we believe. So... No. So yeah, I guess that's that's just an obvious one. Um, most Protestants have probably had this misconception that we worship Mary um, and we don't think she needed to be saved. The fact that we think that she is immaculate and was born without the stain of original sin, which we do believe that, gasp, that's not a misconception. We think that she did not need to be saved. So I guess that's kind of a two-parter. But we did an entire episode on Mary, so we can link that below where you can go and hear more of um, my reasoning or defense of saying, no, Catholics do not worship Mary. We have two different kinds of ways that you quote-unquote can reverence um, someone. Latria worship, which is... um, the worship due to an uncreated being, so that is only for God. And then dulia worship, which actually is veneration. So latria worship is adoration and dulia is veneration. And that is the um, veneration that we give to Mary and the way that we honor Mary. And those are very distinct because dulia is for created beings. Mary was created by God, obviously. And Latria is for uncreated beings. <laughs> so there's a huge distinction. <laughs> um, anything that Mary does, we think, comes from the power of God. So anything God does is just God. Um, and Mary, we look at as the moon who reflects the light of the sun, of her son. And anything she does is only to lead people closer to Jesus, is only by the power of God, is only within the bounds of God's will. It's not anything from her own power. So... Even though there's a lot of misconceptions in the way that it looks, um, because from the outside, like today after mass, I went up to the Mary uh, statue and kneeled and was praying and was like, hey girl, help me out. That's what you said, (laughs) word for word. That was exactly what I said to her. Um, I think anything that Mary ever does or any power that she has is because God gave it to her and gave her that role. So Mary is totally um, in submission to God. She says that in the Annunciation. So that's a huge difference. And even though there may be some people that don't understand it, I would argue that's poor catechesis. That's not on, that's not the Catholic Church teaching that's wrong. And that's on both sides, that there's just poor catechesis when Mm -hmm. the actual teaching is played out, um, is played out in a way that is erroneous. That is not the actual teaching. So that's once again, you should look at what we actually teach, not like the worst of how a (laughs) Catholic or tradition or even some cultures um actually venerate mary because they could be doing it in a way that is not right mistaken no are just like not understanding that mary is not like a goddess she's not doing her own thing she's only doing what god is allowing her to do and then i guess we don't we don't think she didn't need to be saved just because she's immaculate um god is god and god can use the merits from jesus's sacrifice on the cross that he used to save all of humanity out of time because he can also raise people from the dead and have a baby be born from someone that did not have sex so god can do pretty much anything you can disagree with us but don't say we don't think mary didn't need to be saved because 
she says in Luke 147, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. So nobody can really disagree with that. Well, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Pretty um, yeah. And I guess another thing on Mary, just because Megan brought this up in her episode. Oh, um, I know. I know. I had to just address this real quick. And Luke 11, 27 through 28, it reads, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And the way that we read that is what actually is most important about Mary. It is obviously very important that she nursed Jesus at her breast because no other human can ever say they did that. That's just like crazy that a woman, God gave the power to a woman, a human being to do that. Anyway, incarnation, crazy stuff. Um, We believe they were pointing out that actually what was most important about Mary was not her womanly body or what she did with her body, which was really important, but that she heard the word of God and kept it and was perfectly faithful to God, which, um, yeah, that's any uh, thoughts, Megan? No, I mean, I think uh, if you're interested in this topic, you should stay tuned because we want to do kind of like a four-part series just going kind of more in depth on each of the Marian dogmas. So think like virginity, um, excuse me. Her uh, immaculate conception. Yeah, all of those things. Um, We want to go a little more in depth in those, um, have a more discussion. So stay tuned because that's coming up. Yeah, we actually agree with the very first Marian dogma. There's four in the Catholic Church. Believe it or not. The mother of God, Council of (laughs) Ephesus, Megan Theotokos. We agree on that. So golden. Yep. Yes. So the next misconception is kind of following from the Mary one, because obviously Mary, we believe, is a saint. She's the greatest saint. She's above the other saints, because we don't think any of the other saints were immaculately conceived or perfect. They were fallen human beings just like us. And what's so cool about them, actually, is they were the same exact as us, but they um, are so inspirational and honored God in such beautiful ways and live such a beautiful life that we believe they went straight to heaven and did not spend any time in purgatory and um well that's a whole other thing we can get to that some other time Whoa, should we do, guys comment <laughs> should we do an episode on purgatory <laughs> yes um but one of the misconceptions is that we think saints have their own power or on the same are on the same level as god and when we are praying to them or asking for their intercession just like people think we're worshiping mary they think that we are worshiping the saints but once again like i said what we give to them is veneration it is dulia not latria and i'm gonna read from the catechism um, where they say being more closely united to christ those who dwell in heaven fix the whole church more firmly firmly in holiness they do not cease to intercede with the father for us as they pro-offer their merits which they acquired on earth through the one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. So by their fraternal concern is our weakness greatly helped. So the saints do not have their own power. All their power comes from Christ. They intercede just as we intercede for each other, but in an even greater way because 
I can pray for Megan and it actually can work. I can pray to God and be like, please help Megan get a job. And then God actually can hear my prayer and extend his power and help to Megan and help her get a job, which is really cool that God listens to us. Mm -hmm. Um, But just in the same way, we believe that the saints can offer up our prayers to God because they even have an even more direct um, connection with God, which we would all agree that if you're in heaven, you are united with Christ. And we don't think that saints are out there doing their own thing. Um, the beauty of it is that they're just perfectly united with God and we can ask them for help. Um, also from the catechism, they say, it is not merely by the title of example that we cherish the memory of those in heaven. We seek rather that by this devotion to the exercise of fraternal charity, the union of the whole church and the spirit may be strengthened. Exactly as Christian communion among our fellow pilgrims brings us closer to Christ, so our communion with the saints joins us to Christ, from whom as from its fountain and head issues all grace and the life of the people of God itself. And um, I think we would point to Revelation 5, where you see the elders bringing up the prayers of the saints as something that we reference, um, that it's biblical that you can pray to the saints for their intercession. Um, We also look at um, in Acts when uh, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So it's just in some way, just as we can have a role to help in other people's personal salvation, um, the saints can as well. And I wanted to point out a verse because this is something that Megan and I have talked about. um, I wouldn't say of art. Well, I guess we kind of have argued about it, but in a friendly way. That in uh, (laughs) 1 Samuel... um, when Saul tries to ask Samuel for help, Samuel does not deny helping Paul because he can't in any way intercede for him or help him in the in going to God for him. He says, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Samuel is not helping him because the saints do, don't do anything that's outside of God's will. If you're asking a saint for something that's outside of God's will, it's not like the saint's going to sneak around and be like, okay, but I'll like get it for you. Like if I go to Samuel and I'm like, God, make this boy like me. and um, Or St. Therese, I want this boy to marry me, so make him want to marry me. But if she's, she's obviously in heaven and is like, no, that's not God's will, Jackie. I'm not going to intercede for that for you. I'm not going to help you in that way. Um, that's what we would see that pointing to. But actually even more is that um, the saints do hear us and they can um, intercede for us and go to God for us. So I guess that's what I have for the saints. Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> that was something that when I studied abroad in Greece, there was a Greek Orthodox nun who was trying to convert me and get me to live in her convent. And I almost When did. Megan had a boyfriend. Yeah, I had a boyfriend. <laughs> I almost thought about it, though, because, like, her convent was so pretty. It was, like, up in the Greek mountains. And she was like, all we do all day is garden and pray. And, like, my little anxious self was like, well, that sounds pretty nice. Um, but that's besides the point. This was something that she talked with me a lot about because I was like, well, you pray to saints because you think they can do things for you. She was like, no. So, yeah, I definitely think that's a caricature that I had at some point as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's sometimes things that even Catholics, obviously, like some of them don't fully understand, which is where some of the misconception can come from because Protestants might be hearing 
the way that Catholics talk about it. And either Catholics aren't just watching the way that they talk about it, because a lot of times we do say, oh, I'm praying the saint tries to get me this or this. But what we understand sure. is that it's only through the power of God. And that saint is only going to intercede for this thing if it's within the will of God. They're not going to go, you know, behind God's back or like give us something that's not within um, the bounds of God or within the will of God. Um, but it can look wacky from the outside. And there also are some Catholics that were not properly catechized and don't understand. You know, they might say something or go to Mary, who's the biggest one, and just really think she is some goddess that's giving them things and it's not through God's power. And that's not true. But I don't think that's a reason to not properly um, ask for the saints intercession just because there are some people that are um, the worst of using that teaching in the worst way are the worst example of our teaching about the saints because that's that is not what the catholic church teaches Mm -hmm. so in my episode we kind of talked about the fact that a misconception is that protestants don't think that you need good works in your christian walk and kind of the reverse of that is a lot of protestants believe that catholics have a workspace salvation so could you go into that a little bit yes so a lot of this i'm going to pull from the catechism and there's an entire section in the catechism called justification after that it is grace and then after that it's called merits so if you want to go and look this up and read it for yourself um, i can leave those linked below but um, when talking about justification the catholic church says Justification has been merited for us by the passion of Christ, who offered himself on the cross as a living victim, holy and pleasing to God, and whose blood has become the instrument of atonement for the sins of all men. Justification is converted in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God and of Christ and the gift of eternal life. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. That's Romans 3, just a different version. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I read that in my episode. (laughs) Then we have, uh, that's so funny. Yeah, because we actually, we pointed out in Megan's video, she didn't say anything I disagreed with. That Mm -hmm. is one of the points of agreement um, and things that we have come to a lot of agreement on between the Catholic and Protestant traditions. So justification, just as Catholics believe, we think has been merited for us by the passion of Christ who offered himself on the cross. Justification is not something that you can earn. It is not something that you can um, do good, a good enough works to get and be saved. Any good works that we do, we would both agree, are um, follow from being justified, from being giving, uh, given that grace and that gift from God. Mm-hmm. Um, the catechism further reads, justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom. 
on man's part is expressed by the assent of faith to the word of God, which invites him to conversion and his cooperation of charity with the prompting of the Holy Spirit who proceeds and preserves his assent. So even further on in our further process of justification, anything that we do, any good works, it's only because the Holy Spirit is working in us. Once again, anything good that we do comes from God. We could do nothing good without God. And if we weren't um, had that initial justification, there's nothing we could ever do to be saved. There's just, there's no way to earn God. Um, and I'm going to read from Ludwig Ott. He was a Catholic theologian and he talks about merit. And he says, merit is dependent on the free ordinance of God to reward with everlasting bliss the good works performed by his grace. On account of the infinite distance between creator and creature, man cannot of himself make God his debtor. If God mm. does not do so by his own free ordinance, that God has made such an ordinance is clearly from his promise of eternal reward. And St. Augustine says, the Lord has made himself a debtor, not by receiving, but by promising. Man cannot say to him, give me back what thou has received, but only give what thou has promised. Mm. So we only think that our good works can merit anything because God freely gives us his grace and um, promised that to us. Um, and with regard to God, there is no strength right to any merit on the part of man. Between God and us, there is an immeasurable inequality, for we have received everything from him, our creator. Uh, and the Catechism for, further says, The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate with man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration so that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first part to the grace of God, then to the faithful. Man's merit, moreover, itself is due to God, for his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. So I think I have read a lot and said a lot, but I think it's pretty clear that we don't think that we can merit our mm -hmm. salvation and that any of our good works mean anything if God had not freely justified us to begin with. Yeah, I always think of the parable of the the debtor who, you know, he owed such a great debt and the man just utterly forgives his debt and you always think about that like okay if someone completely and utterly forgave your debt like there was nothing you did would you go off and then like rack up a bunch of credit card debt yeah people would be like what in the world is happening like yeah no you just <laughs> received this extremely wonderful gift of being saved from this horrible situation you know so it's that good works are motivated out of that gratitude for that amazing gift that God has given us. Exactly. And there are some distinctions, which I think we could do an entire episode on, and we probably will, with our differences between justification and sanctification. But either way, we totally agree that justification is a free gift from God. And like our salvation is just, it's a gift from God. When I um, It's just something that we do disagree on confession. When I go to confession and confess my sins... The only reason I'm even prompted to be able to go to confession or feel any sorrow is because of the grace of God, first of all. And also, God forgives me. It's not like I, I'm not worthy of being forgiven right. yeah. in any way. 
if I got what, you know, human beings, what was coming to us, God would be like, oh, and smite me. And that would be it. <laughs> because there I am with my same sins again and again. And God just freely gives his grace and is like, you are forgiven. Mm-hmm. And that's now let's move along and try to do better. <laughs> yep. And I will be here to forgive you again. It's all just free. Mm-hmm. And that's the most beautiful thing about Jesus is his mercy. And I could go on about that forever, but I won't in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So... We talked about Sola Scriptura a lot in my episode at the beginning. So what would be kind of the reverse caricature for that? Yes. So the reverse caricature, I think, is uh, that Catholics don't read the Bible, don't care about the Bible, that Catholics put the Pope, the Magisterium, or capital T tradition over the Bible. Um, Yeah, that we think the Pope is above the Bible. So it goes Pope, Bible, whatever else. And that's not how we view it. Um, We believe it's tradition and the scriptures and that they work together to reveal the teachings of Christ and neither ever contradict each other. And when the Pope speaks ex ex cathedra or the church lays down um, any teachings that they never contradict the Bible and um, are implicitly in the Bible, although you wouldn't be able to just read the Bible and get those truths totally by yourself which is a disagreement we have but still mm-hmm. um no we highly highly value scripture we believe it is infallible um first of all the entire first half of the mass is based on the scriptures <laughs> we have three different readings um and that doesn't even include the psalm so technically four different readings from scripture at every single mass the first half of the script uh, of the mass is called liturgy of the word So uh, we love scripture. All of our teachings come from scripture. Catholic theologians have been pouring over scripture. You read the catechism. It is filled with scripture, us interpreting and wrestling with scripture and trying to properly um, see what God is telling us in the scriptures because as humans, you know, we disagree and people have argued what he's meaning by these things. So no, we love scripture. And I do think that unfortunately, a lot of Catholics have been poorly catechized and are not taught to read scripture as they should. They only go to the mass and hear scripture. And that is um, very sad, but that's definitely not what the church um, would want would want or teaches. Um, read your Bible, little Catholics out there. <laughs> <clears throat> Read your Bible. Don't and just Protestant. yes. Read your Bible. Don't just go to mass and half listen. Um, and the second thing um, is a distinction between tradition, capital T tradition, and lower key, lower lower, lower key, key, not lower, the high key yeah, tradition, not high key, low key <laughs> tradition. Oh uh, wow. Okay. Capital T tradition and lower, lower T tradition. <laughs> That's a huge misconception and misunderstanding. When we talk about tradition being infallible, we're talking about capital T tradition. So we believe sacred tradition comes from Christ. It's the full living gift of Christ to the apostles faithfully handed down through each generation. It is through tradition that the Holy Spirit makes the risen Lord present among us, offering us the very same saving word and sacraments that he gave to the apostles. Um, And this is a quote from Pope Benedict. Thanks to tradition guaranteed by the ministry of the apostles and their successors, the water of life that flowed from the side of Christ and his saving blood comes to the woman and men of all times. In this way, tradition is the 
permanent presence of the Savior who comes to meet, redeem, and sanctify us in the Spirit through the ministry of his church for the glory of the Father. So a difference would be between the Protestant view of scriptures and the Catholic view of... um, We would think that God gave us a safeguard. He gave us the Pope. He gave us this living, breathing tradition that continually um, develops the... Um, teachings that are in the Bible under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it's not adding anything extra, but what is already there and further interpreting it for us throughout time. As Jesus said, he would stay with us. We think he stays with us uh, through apostolic succession. And we think that God really did make it so that it can be sure that we know exactly through an infallible source what God is saying about baptism, what he's saying about communion, Um, just all the teachings that the Catholic Church has laid out. We would see that as... Um, infallible what the magisterium says how they interpret the bible um, and that would be the way that we see it we wouldn't see that we're putting the magisterium over the scriptures or that um, they're more important than the scriptures it's just that they're helping to guard the scriptures and what jesus um, taught there and what he even may have said outside of the scriptures where protestants would disagree um, is that anything jesus said outside of the scriptures is not something that is infallible or binding to the believer, to the faithful. Is that true? Say that again. Um, So anything Jesus said that's not explicitly in scripture is not totally um, binding. Well, no, if Jesus said it, it is. Not Jesus. I'm sorry. But what... Oh, um, gotcha. Like explicitly in scripture. So we, we think there's things outside of the Nicene Creed that we all should agree with and be unified with within the church. And we think that God gave us that we all in the Catholic church do agree with, or if you are Catholic and are a faithful Catholic have assented to Jesus's teaching of what baptism is, what that should look like, what communion should look like the Eucharist, um, all of the sacraments we have, et cetera. Um, that the, the magisterium, is there the infallibility that lies within the magisterium is when it comes to interpreting scripture yes or anything we would see that is um interpreting or implicitly in scripture yes and then um i guess we would not see this as going outside of scripture or contradicting scripture but let's say we believe in the marian apparitions right And we believe the Pope has the authority to say if it is the ultimate authority, um, which he never makes decisions on his own and would totally like all it would be in accordance with his um, bishops he's with usually um, almost all the time. (laughs) But they would Um, determine if it was like determine if it's a legitimate apparition because there are ones the Pope's been like, "Mm -mm -mm." and the reason that we know it's not true is because it contradicts scripture Mm. and that the Pope would be like, hey, no or sometimes it could be a little that's one of one of the keys of knowing if a marian apparition is um true or not or if it's demonic deception which that could be a whole different episode um but yeah the pope is basically trying to like so that that would be in a way that he is um speaking with his authority that's binding to us that's not just interpreting scripture mm-hmm. um also like we would say the immaculate conception that is something that we do think has been out throughout tradition and we do think is in the Bible. There's verses that we pull for both the Assumption and the Immaculate Conception. 
but the Pope thought it was so important to make it an infallible um, statement, a dogma, because it's not something that's super explicit in the scriptures. It's not something that Jesus, you know, came and said, my mother has no sin, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas Protestants would say, that's not binding to us, where that is binding for Catholics to believe. That's not binding because that's not like super clear in scripture, first of all, and there should be room for you to choose if you agree with that or not. Um, and we wouldn't say you're not a legitimate Christian if you don't th- believe that, because we obviously think Protestants are, but in the Catholic view, we would all ideally be... But you wouldn't be a legitimate Catholic. Yes, and we would all say, ideally, we would all want everyone to be in one church and be under the Pope and all be bound to that, but that's obviously not how things are. Um <laughs> Yes. So there's just, as everyone can tell, as everyone can tell, obviously, uh, in history. So yeah, that's the way that we see tradition. And I think I talked about that longer than I meant to, but we talk about that a lot more in our episode mm-hmm. on sola scriptura. Well, and I think that was something that helped me because when Protestants use like Christian tradition as like a term. It typically is just referring to like church history so like mm-hmm. looking back and seeing the development like councils and church fathers and oh, things like uh-huh. that sure and so i remember kind of in some of our early interactions that was something very confusing to me because i was like what but like catholics clearly disagree with some church fathers or with certain things oh, they yeah. say mm-hmm. and so would you say that it's more of um what the magisterium has determined from church history is binding yes okay yes um because yeah the church fathers i think we both agree while they are reputable sources and they definitely give teachings backing and make them more um because they were closer to the time of jesus yeah they were closer to the time of jesus and they should be paid attention to and listened to they're not infallible Uh, there's a lot of things augustine said that were pretty wacky um and they disagreed with each other Uh, Mm -hmm. there's things that uh augustine said one of the church fathers said that mary was not sinless there were a lot that said that she was but there were um some that said that she wasn't so that's something that the church uh and that's confusing (laughs) so um it's not that the magisterium disagrees with everything that's been said throughout church teaching um because like i said church teaching and church history doesn't point perfectly or fit perfectly to one uh, Christian tradition Mm -hmm. so yeah it's not just anything that has been throughout and it's not even that the disciplines of like a certain point in history so like take for the um, indulgences indulgences is a teaching of the church a valid teaching of the church that we do think is infallible but the way it was being played out um, that Luther was upset with was that it was being they were being sold now the practice that was being put in place um, and the way that that infallible doctrine not infallible but like binding teaching that we would say is in our doctrine was being um, implemented or being practiced throughout the church was not good and was not right but that was a misuse of indulgences that sure. doesn't um, mean that indulgences aren't something that is legitimate legitimate yeah yeah that makes sense well hopefully that kind of cleared some things up for you guys um let us know either on our instagram or yeah some way let us know uh if there's other things or aspects we should cover or if there's something that interested you 
I would like to kind of hear even just from other people's experience what they would kind of notice is maybe some of the five main one caricatures or misunderstandings um you know because obviously this is mostly from our experience and what we've kind of seen and and heard from people so yeah let us know what you think yeah and Megan thank you for listening to me ramble and if you got to the end of this and you haven't listened to Megan's episode on addressing misconceptions of the Protestant face you should listen to that because it's very important to talk about it